0: Hello and welcome back to 365 Days with MXM Tune. I'm Maya, a singer, songwriter, TikTok maker, Oakland native, and professional simp. I'm also a big history nerd. I love untold stories, gross facts, hidden secrets, and anything weird, dark, and funky from the past. Every day for the next 365 days, I'm going to share one of my favorite deep cuts with you. Let's get started. It's 365 with MXM two. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon I'm gonna teach you stuff, no it won't be tough Gonna go a year till you've had enough It's 365 with MXM two. On this day, September 15th, the year 1981, the Supreme Court had a big shakeup. For the first time in nearly 200 years of history, it was going to have a woman justice when the Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously approved a judge named Sandra Day O'Connor. But let's back up first. O'Connor was born in El Paso, Texas in 1930 and was raised on a cattle ranch in a small town in Arizona located about three hours away. She lived a pretty hardcore country life, growing up without running water or electricity and learning how to hunt and drive at a young age. The ranch was so remote, in fact, at some point she had to move in with her grandmother in El Paso just so she could attend school. This ended up being a great move for O'Connor, who was such an outstanding student, she ended up getting into Stanford University when she was only 16. O'Connor graduated from Stanford in 1950 and went on to get a law degree at the Stanford Law School. There, she dated a man named William Rehnquist. He proposed to her and she turned him down. Coincidentally, though, he would later go on to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, overlapping with O'Connor for about five years. Just a little awkward. Not that that was O'Connor's only shot at love, though. In 1952, just after graduating law school, she married John J. O'Connor, a fellow future lawyer, and they lived together in California. Now, there weren't a lot of women lawyers in the 1950s, and O'Connor had trouble finding work after law school. She worked as an attorney for the US Army in Germany when her husband got drafted, but when they moved back to the United States and started a family, she took a short break from the law. Unlike a lot of women at the time though, O'Connor didn't stay at home for long. Instead, she got into politics, serving as an assistant attorney general for the state of Arizona and as an Arizona state senator. After two terms in the state senate, she started moving up through the Arizona courts as a judge, serving in the state court of appeals until Ronald Reagan tapped her to replace then-supreme court justice Potter Stewart. And it was a big deal, to say the least. Reagan nominated O'Connor in August of 1981, and though she was a conservative, some right-wingers vocally opposed her. She got a lot of pushback from anti-abortion groups and prominent evangelicals like Reverend Jerry Falwell, who all argued she would not vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, something conservatives hoped Reagan's Supreme Court appointees would do. History tends to repeat itself. Still, the Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously approved her on September 15th, and she was confirmed to the Supreme Court the very next day. People are sometimes surprised to learn that O'Connor was appointed by a Republican. All the women on the court now were picked by Democrats, but in fact, she was a conservative. She often sided with the other conservatives on the court too, which included ex-boyfriend Rehnquist, Antonin Scalia, and Anthony Kennedy, This was especially true early on in her career on the court, though once Clarence Thomas was appointed, she started to become more of a swing vote. One of O'Connor's most important votes, for instance, was the deciding vote in the 2003 case, Grutter v. Bollinger, which basically saved affirmative action. O'Connor was no stranger to discrimination herself. Remember all the time that she spent looking for a job after law school? And when Scalia once criticized gender and race-based affirmative action in front of her, she reportedly said, How do you think I got my job? It was a joke, but also not really. She also ruled against a women's-only enrollment policy at a nursing school in the 1982 case Mississippi University for Women v. Hogan, arguing that the policy tends to perpetuate the stereotyped view of nursing as an exclusively women's job. Abortion was another big issue that O'Connor didn't always side with the conservatives on. Though she often said she herself was not pro-choice, she repeatedly voted to uphold Roe v. Wade, proving those evangelicals who opposed her... Right. O'Connor was famously the swing vote that upheld Roe v. Wade in the famed 1992 abortion rights case Planned Parenthood v. Casey, despite the conservatives on the court leaning against it. In 2000, she voted with the 5-4 majority in the case Stenberg v. Carhartt, which ruled against state laws banning later-term abortions. In general, O'Connor said she was personally against abortion, but she believed in Roe v. Wade's legal precedent. Things were a little lonely for O'Connor as the only woman on the court. Or, at the very least, her position put a lot of pressure on her. She was reportedly pretty happy when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, the notorious RBG, joined the court in 1993, since some of the media scrutiny was finally taken off of her. O'Connor didn't get to sit on the court with Elena Kagan, or Sonia Sotomayor. They were nominated by Barack Obama, who didn't become president until 2009. O'Connor retired in 2006. Apparently, she didn't want to retire under a Democrat. She was a conservative, after all. And allegedly, she was upset when Florida was initially called for Al Gore in the 2000 presidential election. That rumor gained some legs when O'Connor cast the deciding vote in Bush v. Gore, which ultimately handed George W. Bush the presidency. O'Connor claimed that her vote was impartial, but she also later regretted her vote. She told the Chicago Tribune in 2013, maybe the court should have said, we're not going to take it, goodbye. It turned out the election authorities in Florida hadn't done a real good job there and kind of messed it up, and probably the Supreme Court added to the problem at the end of the day. Whatever the case, O'Connor did retire under Bush, and was replaced by Samuel Alito, who is still in the court today. She and her husband moved back to Arizona, where she sat on some local courts, taught a few law classes, and wrote a book, Out of Order, Stories from the History of the Supreme Court. O'Connor is now 90 years old and currently living in an assisted living facility in Arizona. And now for today's music fact from September 15th. In 2014, U2 released their 13th studio album, Songs of Innocence. The band teamed up with Apple for the digital release, which automatically made the whole album appear in everybody's iTunes account. The problem was that nobody wanted the album free or otherwise. Sure, there was probably like a few U2 fans who were super jazzed about it, but so many people were frustrated by the surprise album that six days after it dropped, on September 15th, Apple had to release a tool to remove it from the iTunes library. Sorry, Bono. And now it's time for our final segment of the day, where I go into my own photo archives and see what I was up to on a September 15th in my life. Okay, so I'm looking through. And to be honest with you, I don't think I was up to anything particularly exciting, but I do have a story to go with one of the photos that showed up when I searched up September 15th. And on September 15th, I took my senior year yearbook photo. And in this photo, you can't see because this is a podcast, I'm wearing a blue turtleneck and chain and sunglasses are resting on the top of my head to pay honor to the Lonely Island. And me and 28 other friends of mine decided that this would be a really good idea. It was one of my best friend, Allie. This was her idea. And so 28 of us in our final yearbook of our entire high school career are looking like the Lonely Island deadpan staring into the camera wearing the same blue turtleneck. There was only two of them. So 28 of us had to wear the same exact thing and chain. I eventually got the photo back of finally when everybody had their photos taken and I had tweeted it to the Lonely Island Twitter account. And if you're not familiar, Andy Samberg is the one that runs that account. He ended up retweeting it. He quote tweeted it and said, so baller. I got so nervous. I deleted my tweet immediately, but I think now is my redemption arc. I'm going to have to make Andy Samberg my mutual on Twitter, eventually it'll happen. Eventually. And that wraps up this episode of 365 Days with MXM Tune. Thank you all so much for listening and letting me teach you about history and even get to share stupid stories about the things that happen in my 20 years of life. I'll talk to you tomorrow, but for now, stay curious. It's 365 with MXM Tune every day so don't leave too soon i'm gonna teach you stuff no it won't be tough gonna go a year till you've had enough it's 365 mxm tune thanks for listening to today's episode of 365 days with mxm tune make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow along with us on social media at 365 days mxm tune on all platforms